welcome to How to Live the Podcast, where we have a real meaningful and fun conversations with people who inspire us. And sometimes we just have them with each other. We are your hosts, Jess and Steph Dadon. And in case you haven't heard yet, we are taking ourselves a little podcast break at the moment, but we will be back with brand new episodes from March 2021. And in the meantime, we are pulling out some of our very, very favorite episodes from the archives. Today, we have the very special Ingrid Newkirk, who is the founder of PETA, that's People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, on this podcast. This episode is definitely one of my all-time faves. I learned so much from Ingrid and I continue to learn so much from all the incredible work that Peter does in the animal welfare space. And particularly something we were reflecting on is the way Ingrid talks about how animal rights and human rights are so, so connected. And this is something we are so passionate about. And we think there is so much change needed in this space. So we thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode. And we hope it changes the way you live your life. Here's Ingrid Newkirk. Well, Ingrid, thank you so much for sitting down with us. I quite literally can't tell you how excited we are that we um, (laughs) get to sit down and have this time with you and particularly feel special after an incredibly inspiring morning that we've had here in your Peter head office. We would love to just kind of begin by asking you where does your love and care for animals and all beings come from? Comes from my mother. When I was growing up, a part of my childhood was in India where there are obvious cruelties. You can see the starving dogs. You can see the beaten bullocks and ponies on the street. And you can see the donkeys working in the brick kilns, things that you usually can't see in England or Australia. And she would always say to me, as we filled our home with refugees who were coming in from Tibet, with beggars from the street, with animals in need, she would say, it doesn't matter who suffers, but that they suffer. It's that they suffer. Who cares what they look like, what language they speak? So our motto has always been animal liberation is human liberation. And really, you can look at that in the far broader sense. Because if you stop eating animals, it's helpful for you, it's helpful for the planet. Whatever you stop doing that's exploitive will be a benefit beyond just the initial obvious victims. But We're all others. I mean, outside me, everybody else is an other. It doesn't matter what they look like or what species they're in. We're all in this together. Mm, Totally. Yeah, listening to you talk about it just makes so much sense. And then coming back to like you were living in India and then how did you find your way to the protest, I guess? Like do you remember the very first protest that you went to? I do. It was against a chicken slaughterhouse in Washington, D.C. I actually worked for the health department, and in the end, I closed it down because of my job. (laughs) (laughs) But first, people had to make a fuss, and often, I mean, you mentioned outlandish. To me, there's nothing more outlandish than how society treats animals. But we do provocative demonstrations, and so we thought we've got to get attention for this chicken slaughterhouse. And so we did a demonstration. No one could believe that anyone back then was sticking up for chickens. 
they just laughed themselves silly mm. and it made the news everywhere. And that allowed us to have a forum, which we've always remembered, to talk about the issues. And it was similarly with the dog barbecue in Australia where, you know, you can show pictures all day long of pigs on the barbecue and no one puts out a warning, but you barbecue a fake dog, not a real animal, and they say, oh, be careful, this is offensive. And you think, which is more <laughs> outlandish, what you actually do or what we pretend to do? Yeah, it's a really funny one is like how all humans – pretty much all humans love dogs. Like dogs are man's best friend. And for some reason, there's just this distinction in people that they're like, dogs don't touch, but everything else is kind of okay. Everything else free game. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, I always used to say growing up, my father was a gourmand and we, he ate his way through the animal kingdom and he took me with him. And there were only two things I wouldn't eat. And one was tripe because it just stunk. It just smelled up the whole house. And the other was tongue because it looks like a tongue. Mm. But afterwards, I began to think it's not just two things I wouldn't eat. I didn't eat dogs. I didn't eat guinea pigs. I didn't eat horses. And yet, if I had grown up in France, I might have eaten a horse or Korea. In Vietnam, I might have eaten a monkey. In the Philippines, a dog. In Peru, a guinea pig. So it's all so odd. It doesn't make any sense. It's illogical. Why would you possibly object to eating the flesh of one and carry on eating the flesh of another. It's nonsensical. Mm, yeah. We had our cousin's baby when he was like four years old. He was like, is the chicken on my plate the same like chicken that I read about in books? And they were like, yeah. And he was like, I don't want to eat that. And like quite slowly started noticing all the similarities between what was on his plate and what was in like these fun kind of like farm books that he was reading. And, and he ended up cutting out all of them. Great. And like, it's pretty amazing to see a four-year-old be able to so naturally start to make those connections from a place of like empathy and compassion that's in all of us. One of the things that's happened, I think, in the older days, many children did make that connection. I know I went around the corner when we were staying in a chalet in France and saw a chicken being beheaded. And I would not touch chicken after that. That was, a, But my mother talked me around to it. And she worked on me and said, you know, it's really all right. And this one died all right. And, and you then fall back into it often. Whereas nowadays, I think parents are more understanding. They know about ethics of the issue, they know about factory farming, and they know that you can be super healthy if you don't eat that. Mm, definitely. Just on that protesting note, we were discussing before we have this funny story that we thought we should tell you, which is um, we often go to fashion weeks for our work and we were in London attending London Fashion Week and it was the first day we were going and on our way there we could kind of hear this like big commotion and we're like, what's happening? And we get to the front of London Fashion Week. This was two years ago, I think. And there was just a huge protest outside. There were people with signs saying ban fur at London Fashion Week. And we were like, London Fashion Week allows fur? Fuck this. We're not going in. And we joined the protest. <laughs> that is yeah. so good. We so ditched good. our three shows for the day and Excellent. we joined the picket line. Yeah. And it felt so good. Like, you know, it even made me like emotional being there and like standing up for something that you believe in with all of these people around you that feel the same way. Like it's it's an indescribable feeling, but like being involved in a protest is really like this powerful feeling. It is. And people get so nervous if they haven't done one. Then they become pro 
protest junkies. <laughs> <laughs> but I remember my knees knocking the very first fur protest I did. I was by myself inside. I'd managed to get in with the musicians in New York, and I was well-dressed. And I sat on the stage with the musicians, and they must have thought, who are you? But they didn't say anything. And then at the right moment, I knew I had to get up and do this and take the microphone and speak. And once it was over, I was so happy that I had overcome my nerves. And I think we all can. And then afterwards, you think, well, that was easy. I mean, nobody pulled out my fingernails. I wasn't hung upside down in a jail. You know, I got a bad meal that night in the jail. <laughs> the vegan sandwich is bologna sandwich with no bologna. <laughs> Two pieces of bread. Mmm, tasty. <laughs> Maybe you can protest now to have more vegan food in jails. We do. We yeah. do. And in fact, Pamela Anderson has helped us with that campaign. We got a big jail in Arizona to go all vegan. And it's it snowballed. Yeah. Amazing. That's awesome. Well done. So there are a lot of people that are maybe listening to this that they don't feel as passionately about the treatment of animals as say you do or even we do. So we thought we would ask you like, why is this something that people should care about? Oh, there's no question. I mean, if you fancy yourself as a decent human being, I mean, if you talk to your children, imaginary children or real, and they ask you what sort of person you are, you would tell them that you're a decent, kind individual. You know right from wrong. You don't like injustice. You don't like exploitation. You don't like needless violence. And you feel people should speak up when something is wrong. Well, if you abide by the principles of that and you don't just narrow how you apply it to yourself or your immediate family or your town or your nation or your religion, just keep going. Because if you apply it as a principle, then you believe in animal rights, you believe in women's rights, you believe in rights for the disabled, you believe that everybody is worthy of consideration and respect. And you don't set up these arbitrary discriminating factors, which are rubbish, they're just based on prejudice. So everybody who thinks they're decent and kind should embrace animal rights, no question. Yeah, I think that's for some reason, people just like, draw the line at animals like they agree with everything that you say when it comes to humans and then for some reason there's just like this disconnect like well no they're they're not as intelligent as us they really you know they don't know what's going on it's it's fine you know it was always like that though I think when you grow up with an idea it's very hard to dislodge that idea I mean college students are very good at thinking things through and becoming their own people But we've grown up in societies with thinking that women were stupid, that they couldn't reason, they shouldn't vote, that it was all right to rape them. I mean, these were really things that people actually believed and lived by. You know, that stupid woman. I mean, that's gone because you can't get away with it. And that changes society. And When I was growing up, people made terrible jokes about thalidomide babies and people with disabilities, and it was just considered something you could do. There was no question that, and now, of course, it's out of of bounds, and it should be. So I do believe that you have to think things through. You have to ask yourself, is this right? Does this make sense? You know, is it just prejudice that allows me to do that? Are they stupid? And even if they are stupid... What right do I have to pick on them? That just makes me a bully. Peter campaigns are some of the most covered in the press. How do you come up 
with the ideas for these? Did Was it early on you started to notice that doing these things that would really get people talking was how to get the attention on the issues? Well, I think all social issues are on the back foot a bit because when it comes to news, it's war, it's sex, uh, it's conflict, it's things like that. And you have to fight to get into the news. And we had a very serious issue and we had to get it out. So we thought about, we have brainstormers every single morning of what's in the news and what might apply to animals and how we can get an animal aspect into that story. So we had our first I'd Rather Go Naked demonstration, and it's just silly. It was a woman in a bodysuit. I mean, there was nothing you could see, but she had a, a provocative banner, I'd rather go naked than wear fur. And it took off. I mean, the press couldn't stop talking about it because they thought it was sex or they thought it was a woman showing her body. And so we thought, well, this is ridiculous. This is how we have to behave. We'd rather be rational and talk to people and have the facts, but apparently that isn't good enough. We need to do things that are sometimes silly, sometimes funny, so that we can get our serious issue discussed. And sometimes people will just turn around like a car crash and say, I can't believe those people are doing that. But it makes them stare. It makes them talk about it at the water cooler and at dinner. And then the message spreads. I love hearing you talk about it because it just makes so much sense. And I think even just like doing our research and the things that I'd heard about Peter before, you're right. Like it's always that really outlandish thing that you've maybe done that makes me and my friends start to talk about it. But then it always results in this conversation about animal rights. And I guess, you know, hate to say it, but you do have to play the game a little bit in order to kind of start to have these productive conversations and start creating change. And and it's obviously, obviously working for you guys. No, you're absolutely right. That's it, is you have to play the game because this isn't a hobby. It's not something that it would be nice if it's covered in the press. This is vital that it be covered in the press. I mean, I said this morning that if members of your family were being captured and caged and hurt in these ways, shackled behind the circus, you do something and we need to do something. So getting the word out is vital. And I think it's so brilliant that you you had these passions, but so many people do. What you did is actually you went and you were like, no, nah, I'm not just going to go into like a regular day job. I'm going to fight for this every day. And I feel like so many people would want to do that about things they care about, but they just get stuck in this grind of life and they just go into a regular job that they hate. How did you make that decision that you were going to dedicate your life to something you're passionate about? And what would you say to people who are scared to do the same? Oh, I look back on what happened to me and I feel so lucky that I was able to find a way into helping animals because it means everything to me. And I do believe that you don't want to come to a time when you're on your deathbed and you look back and you think, gosh, I lived my life, but what did I do? Maybe, you know, I bought a house. Maybe I went on holiday. I, who cares? But you've got such power as a consumer. You've got such power with your voice and with your, maybe you write or you paint or you design or whatever you do. You are among the most privileged living beings on the planet. Don't squander it. 
your life will go by. I say to young people, because I'm now 70, I always thought it would last indefinitely. It was really kind of, at the beginning, boring because it was going to take so long. But now, <laughs> <laughs> but now I think, oh, that clock's ticking. And if we could have a watch that actually told you how much time you have left rather than what the time is today, I think we would hurry up because you've only got so much time and it speeds up. I'm in a bit of a panic because I think I've got so much I've got to do. So please don't wait till you're my age to wake up to that. Go and do something that matters to you. Don't just punch a clock somewhere and go home and watch television or whatever you do. Mm, I think that that's such fantastic advice, especially for young people now that like we feel this frustration that we want to feel like we make this difference, but then we get bogged down with like the day-to-day bullshit. Something you said this morning really, really resonated with me, which was always be the first to speak up because if you do, others will join you. How do you inspire people to care about the things you care about? (laughs) Well, I think there are different approaches for different people because some of them care about the environment or they care about their health. They have someone in their family who's been ill and some of them really care about animals and just have no idea what's going on. I think the foundation is if you're against injustice, then you should be for this. And I often say to people, well, when they object to something that we're promoting, well, you're against cruelty to animals, aren't you? And it's a rare person who would say, no, 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 I don't care about that. There are some, but most people do care. I always try to say, well, what is the thing that's holding you back? And sometimes you'll find people say, well, I could never be vegan because I just love cheese. And then I will go out and find them, if I can, (laughs) some great vegan cheese. And nowadays there are so many kinds. Or if they're drinking milk and they say, oh, I could, you know, I do the same thing. So if they have a child in school, I'll point them in the direction of an alternative to dissection if the child has to dissect. Whatever it is, a film, a video, something to eat, something to wear, a cosmetic, anything, I think you should show as much as you can and also help people try it by giving things to people. Mm, I think that's such awesome advice is that like it's kind of like people see obstacles where you see solutions. So you go out and you find them these solutions. And then if those things aren't obstacles anymore, well, they really don't have an excuse anymore not to kind of go down that path, which is, you said vegan cheese, like we've been blown away since we've been in LA. We come to LA a lot. And I reckon we were here about a year ago, but just this year, there are vegan options on all of the best restaurants that we're going to and, like, not just any old vegan options. There yeah, are like, like a, a few... full plant-based section. It says plant-based. Yeah. And they're outstanding. Yeah, I had like... a bolognese the other day and I had a burger two nights ago that I had to call the waiter over and say, sorry, I definitely ordered the vegan one. Can you just make sure that it is? And it's outstanding what they can do with food now and it's it's no longer a reason to not be part of the movement, I You think. can get vegan everything. You can get vegan tacos, vegan shrimp, vegan mayonnaise, vegan everything. There's a vegan foie gras, there are vegan cheeses. I mean, there's nothing. There's a vegan caviar called caviar. <laughs> I mean, it's everywhere. <laughs> but across the street from here, there's a very nice restaurant. And on there, they serve meat and they serve cheese. They serve beer and wine and they serve vegan food. Their menu has a sign on it, but it's not the V for vegan. It's NV 
for not vegan. Oh, so. cool. <laughs> that's, that's amazing. Great. There's also um, Just Egg that we've been really wanting to try since we got here because we look at it on Instagram and it's fully scrambled eggs. Oh, but you've it's got not. to try Follow Your Heart. What's Follow that? Your Heart Egg comes in a little carton, like an egg carton, a cardboard egg carton, and you can just take one of those eggs and make a lot of different scrambles with it, omelettes with it. Every, Follow Your Heart is fabulous. Oh, okay. cool. We'll definitely have to check that one out. So when we look at Peter and the success that you've experienced, one thing that stands out to us is this really loyal community that you've built and and that have helped to champion the cause. We kind of wanted to talk to you about that and what has this community allowed you to do and, and how you've kind of gone about building it? Well, it builds itself really because as long as you've put out the information and you make the resources available and you have a can-do attitude. At Peter, we really talk about the can-do attitude. We don't like obstacles. We have a saying that if you run into a brick wall, if you hit your head against it enough times, it'll chip and eventually it'll fall. <laughs> so <laughs> if you come to a brick wall, you go over it, under it, or you knock it down. So really believing because we've seen it happen, that if you are tenacious and you keep going, and people pick up on that and it empowers them. And we're very big on on being a conscientious consumer. So we say, you know, you could give $10, $100 to an animal-based charity every year because you care about them. And that's very nice and they need it. But you go out and you spend thousands of dollars a year on feeding yourself, clothing yourself, buying shoes, entertaining yourself, all these things that even if you buy a can of paint, make sure it's vegan paint. You know, put your consumer power to work. So we empower everybody to see how important their lives are. And so I think that community grows of powerful consumers. Mm, And that's just such a positive lesson for everyone to learn. Like if we could all feel like we mattered that much, that actually what we were spending every day made a difference, that would make us all feel better in so many aspects of our life. Well, you wouldn't have these things in the stores now that we do if people hadn't said, could you stock this or I'm not buying that, I want this, and hadn't written to the companies We say, send your receipt in for something else and say, see what I'm buying now? Because you still test on animals. And they tabulate that stuff. They have marketing people all the time looking at what consumers want. So you are an extraordinarily powerful person. Sometimes people forget that. Like they're kind of like, oh, I'm one person. What change could I really drive? Well, and I think that makes me think of our shoe label even. Like we used to produce glitter shoes because we actually didn't know like the harmful glitter, that whole movement. And we had just one person write to us saying, I just wanted to let you know I really love your shoes, but I won't buy them because they're glitter. That was a conversation that we then had around the office and we're like, shit, we had no idea about all this stuff and we haven't produced glitter since. And so just from one person sending that email, you know, it's pretty amazing what the change can be made. Mm -hmm. And then we talked about how you've been at this pounding the pavement for so long and it's taken, you know, 40 years for it to finally be claimed the year of the vegan or (laughs) however many years. So when it's kind of like all lumping on top of you every day and it kind of feels like you're not pushing forward and it can feel overwhelming, how do you see past that and kind of keep going? Well, I'm very lucky because I can look back and I know how far we've come. And I am a student of other social movements, particularly human slavery, 
We still have slavery of animals, of course, but human slavery, the women's movement, all these things interest me. And I think they must have all felt totally bleak, as if this is never going to happen. Sojourner Truth was a black woman who used to stand up in gatherings of white men, because they were the only ones who were allowed in the room, and say, look, you know, can't I have my little half pint full? You can have your gallon, but can't I have my little half pint full? And they burned her boarding house down. They threw rocks at her. And I think she must have felt so often that it was hopeless, but it wasn't. Civil rights was won. Yes, it's not perfect. Yes, there's a lot of room to grow and do better. But you think how far we've come and you know that if we forge ahead and we're vigorous and we keep pushing, that we are going to gain those sorts of things too for our movement. Mm. You talked this morning about the protest that was staged in Melbourne recently and that was all over the news in Melbourne. It was outside our main train station. People were sitting on the roads and they were protesting against animal cruelty. The majority of the chat coming out of it was probably about how disruptive to the traffic that was and how ridiculous those people were. You did talk about this story that we actually hadn't heard about where a radio host was stuck in that traffic and at first annoyed but then ended up realising that they were protesting against things she does and she's now become vegan. So we've made a note to find out who this is and we're going to have her on our podcast. (laughs) But, yeah, like the biggest conversations we found and we live in, you know, a progressive area but the biggest conversation was around how annoying it was for the traffic people were just really pissed off they were saying that that's not the way to drive change and then this really pissed me off I was like having dinner the next night and someone was laughing and saying oh as an anti-protest a bunch of people went and had a big barbecue the next day how awesome is that and I didn't even know what to say to this guy because to me that is just so ridiculous but it really is like a lot of people's opinion still. What do you say to these people in those moments? <laughs> I probably shouldn't tell you. <laughs> <laughs> what I think and what I say might be two different things though. But yeah, I, all social movements, I mean, look back, every social movement was jeered. The people who stood up for rights had things thrown at them. They were spat upon. They were mocked. This is just an evolutionary process. Who said, you know, first they laugh at you, then they discuss it, and then they accept it. And we have to go through these stages. It's pretty pathetic, and I think people should be called out if the biggest thing to them is inconvenience. I mean, if a child is hit by a car and it's going to, you can either go on to work or you can stop your car and get out and help that child. I mean, would you laugh and would you say, well, that's just too inconvenient? So the same principle applies. We don't mind being laughed at. We don't mind being mocked. We're in a process here. So just get it out of your system and we'll get to the next stage. That's fine. But it's moronic and it's uh, something that everybody should, they, they should be called on it. Why exactly are you laughing? And why do you think that convenience is more important than the suffering of animals who feel pain just like you? What if you were in that? Wouldn't you hope that somebody would stop traffic to get some attention for you. And I would just very nicely keep going because people can't defend their position. Yeah, they can't defend torture in the same way you wouldn't be able to defend torture for humans. You can't really defend torture for animals. And I think you're right. It is a process. And and it's something that I feel like I only fully grasped this morning, just hearing about the change that you're creating. And I think 
initially when we started asking around and telling people that we were coming in this Peter day, you know, a lot of the responses from our meat eating friends was that they have such angry protests and that's never going to change my mind and, and things like that. And I think from being here and listening to everyone speaking this morning, it's very clear to me that so much of what you do is at a top level and it's about campaigning with governments and it's about campaigning with big corporations and you're kind of starting there and then noticing the trickle down effect like when China announces that they're doing this big thing on no longer testing on animals or hopefully that's the way that they're moving in. So how do you kind of go about creating change in these big organisations like this amazing story that you told with KFC this morning about showing them fried chicken however many years ago and they wouldn't even... Vegan fried chicken. Vegan fried chicken, sorry. And they wouldn't even touch it with a 10-foot pole and now they're doing vegan fried chicken in their stores. I mean, it takes tenacity, it takes persistence and to me that always works in the end. I can give you one example. They're all quite different because we... So always say we go to the corporations who are doing bad things to animals first and we have already done our homework and we are able to tell them what they could do instead. And sometimes we're completely fobbed off, the door is slammed in our face, we don't even get an answer to the letter and we keep going and we find other people maybe on the board or the trustees or, and still we might be told to go away or not told anything at all. When we found out, because of a wonderful whistleblower, and I say to people, if you're reading the gas meter and you see something in someone's house that's wrong, or you're installing a pipe in a zoo, and you see, or you're a truck driver, call in if you see something wrong. This whistleblower worked in a General Motors laboratory in Detroit, and he knew that in the basement they were testing uh, car steering wheels and car impact by strapping baboons and pigs into a chair. They had them on a track, and the track went down and slammed into a wall. And he saw them. They weren't dead. Many of them were suffering. And he, GM would have nothing to do with us at all. So we escalate after they slammed the door. And so we first started um, protesting. They didn't listen. We then chained ourselves to cars in the auto showrooms. They didn't listen. We asked our, our members if they had an old General Motors car, could we have it? We got cars, we spray painted them and beat them up with sledgehammers outside the auto showrooms. They still didn't listen. And in the end, we were setting fire to these donated cars outside the auto showrooms and then they listened. And so now, if you see a safety test for cars, you see mannequins being smashed into walls. That's because we got rid of animal tests all over the world. There's no one who uses animal tests. And all the car companies, except Mercedes, used them. So it just took persistence and escalation, and we got there. Woohoo! That's so good. Well done. <laughs> That's incredible. And I think... Yeah, people don't realize they just see like one protest in isolation and it just seems like an angry protest and they're like, well, that's not going to change my mind. So this must not be working. But hearing about all of these incredible changes that you guys are driving, just sitting there and hearing about them this morning, scientists talking about how, you know, they're pushing for labs to no longer test medical procedures on animals and that actually 95% of those that are successful with animals go on to fail anyway in clinical trials and how, you know, you're championing other ways of doing things. Like it's 
such a large scale. We've been completely blown away by it. But also I've been really surprised but excited to see how it's very peaceful here. The atmosphere at Peter is very peaceful. While those protests might appear aggressive, they're for a peaceful reason. And even these organizations that you guys are protesting aggressively against how you embrace them once they change and you're so willing you know you're displaying like Dove's logos and applauding them for for getting on board and partnering with you guys you're not against these people you're just trying to pull them in and once they are you completely embrace them which is it's actually a really loving environment oh i mean what we're trying to do is have a peaceful world it's a pretty ambitious goal um, but we're against violence and so we might be loud we might be annoying, but we're peaceful. And uh, as you say, with the corporations, if they do one good thing, we're very happy. If they do everything that's good, then we'll go away. And you'll champion them as well, you know. Oh, like, yeah. Which is awesome. Beyond Burger, for example. I mean, we have pushed and pushed that product, and now it's going to be in McDonald's in the U.S. and Canada and so on. But I think our scientists, that's a good point, is that one of our scientists was saying that the corporations like Dow and big pharmaceutical companies would think, well, we're not engaging with these activists. But once they do get in the room, they find out we often are scientists and they're neurologists, toxicologists, they know about carcinogenicity. They, they know more than the people in the room. And they have to concede that we can actually uh, send them in the direction of more effective, cost-effective, efficient experiments that don't involve animals. And then they come on board and then they call us and say, can you help us with this? And of course, we're right there. We'll help them with anything. Yeah. yeah. And it's something that I didn't realize that Peter did actually to businesses that are kind of like, we want to do this, but it's too hard. It's beyond our capabilities that you then will send your experts in and say, okay, let's collaborate and actually help and move forward, which I think is such an inspiring way to create change. And it shifts the conversation so that rather than like it's them against us, it's how can we all work together to drive change? Yeah. yeah. It's more like us against the things that are perceived as normal. It's yeah, and we incredible. could save their reputation if they, because they don't want a lot of consumers screaming at them and they don't want to go down in the history books as the last company to have changed and do something ethical. And everyone now in corporate world knows that there are more and more ethical or conscientious consumers and that's why you've got to harness that power. So are there things right now that you're championing for and, you know, fighting for that you would love to see change? Everything. <laughs> I think the world is upside down and it has been, but it's getting righted bit by bit. The use of animals in experimentation is something that is so horrific and most people never get to see. It goes on in these secret places where you have to have your fingerprint taken, your iris scanned, you have to have access. No one's going into these places unless they work there. And somebody uh, was talking about how they worked in a lab and they saw this poor baboon who had his head opened up and he had electrodes in his head, this big line of stitches down his shaved head. And then this man moved away. And eight years later, he came back to the lab to say hello to his former colleagues. And there was that poor baboon sitting in the same stainless steel box that he'd been sitting in eight years ago when the man left. 
And that man, for the first time, thought to himself, well, you know, I got married. I moved across the country. I changed jobs several times. I've been on all these holidays. I bought a car. I've been places, done things. And that baboon has been sitting in that steel box day after day, night after night, for those last eight years. And people don't realize what that must be like. You know, if you sat in your bathtub, the way an orca whale in a sea world sits in that cell, if you sat in one of these places that we confine animals to, and that's all labs with their whitewashed walls, nothing to see, nothing to do, nothing to hear, often no companionship of your own kind, the doorknob is turning and your pulse is racing, your heart is beating faster, because a human, a huge alien, is about to come in and do something to you, we don't think about that. So we have to say, if we're in school, and someone suggests we're going into science, don't use animals. Be one of the PhD thesis people who stands up and says, I'm not going to use animals. And don't go into animal science, because that career is going down the tubes. But think of the animals in the labs we have got to get rid of because we have all the alternatives. We have lung on a chip. We have heart in a Petri dish. We have whole human DNA on the Internet. There is no excuse to continue to force feed and harm and implant electrodes in animals. This time should have passed if it ever should have begun. And so we all need to remember animals in laboratories have to go. Mm. And I think it comes back to the way people justify it is by saying, well, they're different to us. They don't feel in the same way that we do. They're not as smart as us. You know, they come up with all of these reasons why. And, and in actual fact, most of them aren't even true. And I think something that you kind of talked about this morning was that when looking at animals and the way we see them as different to us, it starts from the idea of even creating differences between humans. Like you have a different color skin to me. I have a different color skin to you. So I'm superior, things like that. And it was pretty incredible to hear you also kind of weave in human rights as you're speaking about animal rights, because I see how the two of them are so closely linked. It's the same thing. I think the principle is the same. And people say, oh, well, that person, they're of a different race. What does that even mean? You know, what is race anyway? You know, haven't we all got a heart? Haven't we got eyes? Haven't we got a brain? And this idea that, well, uh, so-and-so women are stupid, you know, or whatever we're looking at and putting down, it's just so wrong because it wouldn't even matter if women were stupid. You couldn't treat them as if they weren't worthy of rights. You know, a child might be stupid because they're young and they haven't learned, but that doesn't mean you can cut them up. It doesn't mean you can hack off their leg and have it for lunch. I mean, it's just so ridiculous. So we have to look at our similarities, not our differences. And then it doesn't matter what gender you are, what nation you're from, what race you are, although I, I really can't embrace the idea of different races. I think, you know, some of us moved earlier from Africa than others, and our pigment changed. But we can't look down at anybody just because they're not exactly like us. They don't speak the exact same language. They don't believe in the exact same things as we do. Communication is so different across the species. You know, there's even a book, uh, what is it, men are from Mars, women are from Venus, because men and women don't understand each other. So who are we to say, oh, well, communication with the other species, we just don't understand it. Your dog 
can understand about 200 words in your home without being taught one. That's just a fact. Some know a thousand. And you, we don't know one word of dog. It's so I mean, true. it's just so pathetic. And babies don't know any words when they're born. We have to teach all of them. Yeah. But you know, your dog watches everything you do because he or she has to. I mean, dependent on you for water, for going for a walk, for relieving themselves. So they pay attention. And we think we pay attention, but we don't know any of their languages. I mean, you listen to birds talking to each other. They pass on messages. They know what they're doing. Even frogs drum out messages on tree bark. You know, rhinos have a breathing language. Cows communicate with facial expressions that are so subtle you can't even notice them. But people who study them now notice them. Elephants speak subsonically. We can't even hear it. Whales have songs. Yes, and they change their songs over the years. So, you know, we need to get over ourselves. We're not gods. The rest of the living life forms are not trash. We're all in this together. Great orchestra of life. Mm -hmm. So what steps are you taking to change something like animals in labs now? Well, we have 19 scientists on staff with all different specialties, and we have about 1,500 consulting scientists as well. And we are working at the moment on a number of things, especially the use of captured wild birds for neurological experiments and eye movement experiments. And we're objecting to the publication of these ludicrous experiments that you still see in science journals that are all about psychology. If you shock a rat or you drop a guinea pig into uh, water or you dangle them by the tail, I mean, really elementary rubbish. And then you make some, well, it's inconclusive, but it appears that they're, they're depressed or all this stuff has to go. So we're working very vigorously on an end to for example, the use of animals in sepsis. Sepsis is a big problem for human beings. You know, germs are getting stronger and bacteria is getting stronger, and we are suffering from sepsis in hospitals. But where is all the money going? It's going to give sepsis to dogs and mice and monkeys when even the National Academy of Science has said that is the least productive thing you can do. We've never learned anything from any of that. You need to look at the human causes and the bacteria and so on. So what are some simple changes, I guess, after this kind of like big conversation? Just some simple everyday things that animal lovers can take into their lives that can help. It's so easy. I think there are so many opportunities every day. Everyone eats. So you can start there and you can veganize your favorite recipes. That's not hard to do. And try new foods, new cuisines. World of vegan food is endless and, and hugely wonderful. Um, everybody mostly wears clothes. So look at the shoes that you are going to buy or the jackets. Don't buy a Canada goose jacket, which is a dead coyote, and then a jacket stuffed with geese feathers, and they've all died. They don't live anymore. Look at anything that you're getting. Get a vegan version of what you like. It's so easy now. Lighter weight, you know, fashionable, whatever, practical, anything. Get some tubes. <laughs> we have exactly. a lot of friends with awesome vegan are. labels. Like Jessica's wearing her Sans. Oh, we're both wearing our Sans Beast bags today. Very oh, yeah. nice. We have a lot of PETA approved vegan labels Great. in Australia now, which we are as well. If you're going to buy a car, for example, don't take leather seats. It takes about eight cows to make a car interior. 
Whoa, uh, eight cows. Eight cows, because oh bits God, are discarded. So and I followed the cattle trail in India, where most leather, amazingly enough, comes from. And the suffering of those cows is hideous. And they're gentle angel animals. They really are lovely. So don't buy any leather, whatever you do. If you get a car, ask the manufacturers. And they're changing now because of demand for vegan leather or for cloth interiors. I would say talk to people because that's very powerful, whether you're in a dog park or you're in a grocery store, wherever you are, point out things like there's the follow your heart egg, there's the oat milk, there's the this, and just say, have you tried this? Or I just tried this and it's fantastic and people are interested. If you've got a child in school or you're a teacher or you're a parent, then make sure that the school doesn't have little animals in aquariums somewhere who are going to be neglected, who don't have their needs met for show and tell for students. Make sure that there are options to dissection, which are fabulous, you know, wonderful computer things, models, you name it. Don't buy anything that's tested in rabbits' eyes or down their throats or in other horrible ways. And be engaged. Talk to people who you might have bought from or you are buying from to praise them and to ask them to change, depending. But mostly educate people and seize opportunities. They abound. Don't go to an entertainment that involves animals. Don't have your picture taken with a tiger cub or a parrot when you're on holiday. <laughs> I mean, they're not there voluntarily. They've been taken away from their flock or their family. And just tell travel companies that you don't want that to advertise an elephant ride, poor elephants, or, you know, swim with a dolphin. Just say, please take this out of your travel guides. Please don't do this. We didn't appreciate this. I love that you're advocating for these, you know, peaceful, productive conversations. It doesn't always have to be on the negative. Just encouraging people to be choosing these great things is enough that over time that's really going to lead to them driving change rather than going out and accusing your friends of why are you doing this, why are you doing that? Well, we didn't all grow up as Buddha. I always say <laughs> Buddha didn't grow up as Buddha either. <laughs> and I mean, I am a prime example of somebody who needed somebody to say something to me. And I may have been defensive even if they were polite, but I wore fur. I had my first fur coat when I was 19. I went fishing. I ate my way through the animal kingdom. I mean, I had my favorite shoes were leather bass weegens. I loved them. I had fancy shoes too. Somebody had to say something to me or I had to see something before the light came on. So I don't write off anybody because I think if I could change, then anybody can change. And I have seen people who were so staunchly anti-animal just out of sheer ignorance and not being exposed to the facts change and become wonderful advocates. It, it really is lovely to see. Don't write anybody off and remember where you came from. Mm, I love that. That's such a great message to spread. And the more informed we are, the more we have capacity to care and change. And I think that so often people have these like hard lines when they just haven't educated themselves yet. So I'm really excited for people to hear this conversation and get that really productive conversation happening within our community as well, because we can all be doing these little things in our days that just really make such an impact. We always end off um, our interviews with some quick fires. So uh -oh. we'll just ask you these ones quickly. <laughs> um, do you have a favorite vegan restaurant you could recommend? 
I mean, you can barely walk out onto the street without falling over a vegan <laughs> restaurant. But I love Chinese food. I love Chinese vegetables. I love Chinese vegetables with garlic and tofu. And so I go into Chinatown and eat there mm, if I yum. can. Good one. What is your favorite animal? Well, that's hard. I really feel sorry for and love chickens. I used to have rescued chickens, and they all have personalities. Someone said to me the other day, a chicken has a personality. But yes, of course they do. Some flirt, some are withdrawn. Depends. But yes, the chicken is one of my favorites. And I'm also very, very fond of rats because they get such a bad rap. They They do. They're really cute. Rats are adorable. And when people hear me say that, they get so taken aback. Like, But like, if there's one in like someone's house, I'll be like, I'll come and catch it for you. And I'll just let it out. Outside. Like, it's just a little fluffy thing. It's pretty cute. And what's something else that you're super passionate about other than animals? Formula One racing. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not as frivolous as it sounds. It could be. But Lewis Hamilton, who is the Formula One champion, is a vegan now. And Michael Schumacher, who the former uh, champion, unfortunately had an accident. And he, he helped us stop uh, monkey experiments in Germany. And he helped us with Hurricane Katrina when we were rescuing dogs in Louisiana. So a lot of these drivers have sworn off foie gras and their um, car companies too, uh, like uh, the Asian car companies have, have said, no, we won't serve it. So I managed to mix my other passion with my work. How random. I love that. <laughs> well, they can eat vegan caviar when they celebrate their wins. They could. And the last thing. We saw downstairs that you're um, going to be releasing a new book. And so we just wanted to hear what that was about. And maybe we can kind of encourage people to go out and get it. Thank you. You can pre-order it. You can get an advanced copy. It comes out January the 7th. It's called Animal Kind. About the amazing things animals do and their traits and so on, and the amazing ways you can help them. So it's an easy peasy guide to what you can do in your daily life because now you've learned who animals are and how important they are and how they need protecting their talents, their abilities, their love, their everything else. Here are easy ways that you can help them. Well, Ingrid, thank you so much for giving us your time today. It's been really, really incredible to sit down with you and you've just shared some amazing tips. So, yeah, really excited for our listeners to hear this one and also very excited for the rest of the workshop today. Oh, good. Well, thank you for doing this. You obviously have a wonderful way of teaching people important lessons. Thank Thank you. you. Thanks. What an incredible listen was that. Jess and I have actually both gone vegan in the last year and it feels so, so good to be really standing up for what we believe in and advocating for animals by what we choose to put on our plate. So hope this has inspired you in some way. And if it helps, we both started by cutting out food groups one by one. So for me, one year, I just decided to cut out barramundi. And from cutting out foods one by one, I ended up going totally vegan. So hopefully... 
this has inspired you in some way to make a little bit of a change too. And there really is so much delicious vegan food out there now. It is not an excuse at all, I promise you. I do not feel like I miss out on anything. If anything, I feel like my life is so much more enriched that I know that every single day I'm making really good choices that align with my values. So I hope we've given you something to think about today. Even if it is just one little thing that you feel like you could do for animals every day, I feel like one little thing eventually adds up to something massive. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode. We will be back here in two weeks' time with another favorite from the archives. Sending you love. Bye. (laughs) 